Welcome to Lecture 13, The Women at the Cross, Mary, the Mother of Jesus. This is the fourth and last part of our lectures on Women at the Cross, and if you've been taking note of our tally so far, we should have as many as nine women who have been named or otherwise identified in the Gospels as having been, or likely to have been, at the crucifixion. We had one Mary named from the town she came from, Magdalene. One Mary identified in relation to her sons, James and Joseph. One Mary identified in relation to her husband, Clopas. One woman identified as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And then there's Salome, Susanna, and Jana. And we can also fairly add the two sisters from nearby Bethany, Mary and Martha. Now that's if all of these individuals really are separate individuals and are not known by different names. It might be eight or seven. But on the assumption there are nine, let's now talk about the tenth. Isn't that a nice, cool, round number? God created ten things on the first day of creation and ten things on the final day. And the words, God said, are used ten times in Genesis. Ten is the amount used for tithing. Give ten percent of your first fruits. There's ten commandments, ten plagues on the Egyptians. 10 generations from Adam to Noah, 10 generations from Noah to Abraham, 10 trials that Abraham endured, 10 days of repentance between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You pick your Passover lamb on the 10th day of the first month. There's a temple that God said should have 10 lavers, 10 lampstands, and 10 tables inside it. God destroyed Sodom because he couldn't find 10 good men there. There were 10 nations always at war with Israel. And Jesus himself was no stranger to the number 10. He healed 10 lepers. He preached parables about 10 virgins, 10 talents, and 10 weight measures. In the Gospel of John, he said the words, I am, 10 times. There were 10 days between Jesus' ascension into heaven and Pentecost. I could go on and on. Actually, 240 times I could go on about the number 10 in the Bible, because in ancient Hebrew, the number 10 had a special meaning. 10, or eser, represents God's authority, completeness of order in a kingdom, and responsibility. In the Hebrew alphabet, each letter has a numerical value, and 10 is represented by yod, the smallest letter. The divine name, Y-H-W-H, and Yeshua begin with yod which is part of every Hebrew letter, and thus part of every Hebrew word. Ten, or Yod, is a building block of creation for the word. And it's no coincidence that, well, 
the Word was made flesh. Sorry, I'm getting carried away again. I wanted to talk about the tenth person, person of interest, if not by actual name, number Yod at the cross, assuming we're right about the numbering and identification of women here. If we're wrong, then nothing I've said about the number 10 applies. Ah, but who cares? We learned stuff along the way. But 10 named or identified women at the cross? Possibly. Hmm, something to ponder on. So let's talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary of Nazareth, or Mary of Joseph, or Mary the Theotokos, as she has been known since 431 AD, when the early Christian leaders and church fathers conferred infallibly that title on her at the Council of Ephesus, the Mother of God or God-Bearer, a name which is rich in theological significance and tells us much, much more than Mary of Nazareth ever possibly could. Now, if you may recall, we have this very curious name identification going on in each of the four Gospels about who was with Jesus at Calvary. Mark and Matthew mention some names, Luke mentions no names, and none of these three mentions anything at all about Mary, the mother of Jesus. So along comes John, and now he gives us more information. Remember, he's writing to an entirely different audience than Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. They are writing to classes of people whom they think will be interested in some facts and not other facts. So they, of course, recount some facts and not other facts. But John is writing to an entirely different class of people. He's writing to Christians. Now, like the other gospel writers, John will recount some facts and not other facts, depending on the importance to the audience. And he's giving us more names than either of the other three gave, because he thinks his class of people, Christians, will want to know them. And that will be our particular focus in this lecture. So what I want to do is to have you settle into a kind of master class on scriptural interpretation, as led by, well, not me, but by real masters of scriptural interpretation. I'm just going to summarize what they've said. I want you to see and enjoy how careful parsing of words, illuminated by attendant historical facts, as well as additional contextual references, can lead to the most stunning of insights and conclusions. Others have done the hard work. It's left to us just to follow along and enjoy the ride. But I need to warn you, the ride will be a bit bumpy. That's because it will involve taking a real hard look at an interpretation of John's episode that has enjoyed wide support for a long time, a time stretching back to many important church fathers, and it's an interpretation that has been steadfastly maintained by the vast majority of Protestant commentators from the time of the Reformation and until today. Indeed, probably many of you listening to this will probably agree with that same interpretation. But we will see some very serious issues with that interpretation and why that interpretation may be wrong or possibly incomplete, and that it can't possibly be the only right interpretation. There's a whole lot more going on under the surface of the words. I don't want you to think we're treading into Gnosticism here, into some kind of secret reading of the gospel that can only know, be known by us very few cognoscendi, nor am I a disciple of Leo Strauss who would be looking for the subtext of the actual text here. We're going to stick with the text itself, but we're going to take a very careful look at the text 
and exposit what that text means, what that text meant to John, what God intended it to mean, and for us to accept that meaning. So let's start with the text. John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, a lot of people over a lot of time have looked at this passage and have come away with a simple interpretation. The passage, they say, was Jesus's last will and testament. He wanted to make sure his mother was cared for, and so he entrusted her to his beloved disciple, where he would be a son to her and she would be a mother to him. This is called the filial piety interpretation because it refers to the duty a good son has to his mother, a duty of pious intention, whereby Jesus sought to take care of his widowed and soon-to-be childless mother. We tend to find this interpretation advanced most tenaciously by Protestant commentators, and it's not terribly hard to understand why, and I'll explain that in a minute. One of the earliest, most extensive, and still most influential commentators was Matthew Henry, whose six-volume exposition was written between 1708 and 1710. He has a very able exposition of this passage that could aptly be characterized as the filial piety interpretation. Christ, he says, was simply taking of his dear mother. Jesus, he says, was not so much taken up with a sense of his sufferings as to forget his friends, all whose concerns he bore upon his heart. Silver and gold he had none, and he had no other way to provide for her than by his interest in a friend. This was an instance of divine goodness, he says, to be observed for our encouragement. Second, he says, this is an instance of filial duty to be observed for our imitation. Christ has here taught children to provide to the utmost of their power for the comfort of their aged parents. And this also, in turn, was an honor upon John, and, as he says, a testimony both to his prudence and to his fidelity. If he who knows all things had not known that John loved him, he would not have made him his mother's guardian. Then here's another popular commentator, Barnes, and his notes on the Bible. And he says this, Mary was poor. I'm not sure how he knows that. It would even seem now she had no home. I'm not sure he knows that either. Jesus, in his dying moments, filled with tender regard for his mother, secured for her an adopted son, obtained for her a home, and consoled her grief by the prospect of attention from him who was the most beloved of all the apostles. What an example of filial attention! What a model to all children! And how lovely appears the dying Savior, thus remembering his afflicted mother and making her welfare one of his last cares on the cross, even when making atonement for the sins of the world. And I could go over the many other usual commentators, the pulpit commentary, the Jameson, Fawcett, Brown Bible commentary, the Matthew Poole's commentary, and Gill's exposition of the entire Bible. And they're all going to make the same basic point. Jesus, the good son, did not forget to care for his mother. Now, there's one easy reason to explain why these commentators, who relish the thought of expounding on pretty much every other line in Scripture with about as much exegetical muscle as they can bear, 
are really so reluctant to flex that muscle here. They're keenly aware, too keenly one might say, of one of the reasons why they broke from Rome in the 16th century. They thought the Roman Catholic Church had put undue emphasis on Mary and said things about her that, they think, offended scripture and basic tenets of Christianity. I'm not going to go into those reasons because they're not relevant to our discussion here. Those reasons are deep and divisive, and like I say, are entirely irrelevant to any exegesis of John's account of Mary. I merely mention this point because I think it explains the reluctance of some Protestant biblical commentators to look just a little bit deeper into the words John gives us here. They are, shall we say, just a little bit touchy about anything related to Mary, and I think it's impossible not to see that touchiness in their, shall we say, rather limited and sparse exegesis here. Although I have to say some commentators are quite explicit about that touchiness and cite immediately to what they think are Roman excesses about Mary. Interestingly, I don't see them making arguments against deeper interpretations. They simply declare that the filial piety interpretation is the correct and only interpretation and that further exegesis is unwarranted. Now, if these commentators simply adopted the filial piety interpretation without objecting to further exegesis, then we could say at least that they shared the same understanding as many church fathers did. Many church fathers, not all, but a great many leading church fathers, took this same interpretation too, and surprisingly, without further exegesis. Father Raymond Brown, whom you've heard me extol for his extraordinary scholarship on the passion and death of Christ, made a survey of church fathers on this passage, and here's what he had to say. One line of interpretation stretching from Augustine to Aquinas to Lagrange has found in this episode a manifestation of filial piety. The dying son is worried about his mother's future, and he is leaving her to his closest friend to be taken care of. Throughout our lectures here, you've heard me quote from the Catena Ara, that is the golden chain, which was kind of an encyclopedia of church fathers that St. Thomas Aquinas undertook, in which he clips quotes from them on each line of scripture. The quotes St. Thomas assembled in his Catena Ara on this passage in John confirm what Father Brown is saying. First, there's a church father, Theophylact of Ored, a prominent Greek Byzantine archbishop in the 11th century, and he has this to say, while the soldiers were doing their cruel work, he, Jesus, was thinking anxiously of his mother. Now, this is probably the most extreme interpretation I've seen from any church father, although he comes quite late, the 11th century, but he probably represents a tradition going back much farther because Greek Byzantines are extremely steeped in tradition. I'm not offering this as a fault, but just as a point of why it's worth considering what an 11th century commentator said about the passage. But I do find fault with what he said. He said Jesus was anxious about his mother. I can't possibly imagine that was the case, and I still see commentators today saying the same thing. Was Jesus ever anxious about anybody? The Lord of Lords who reminded us not to be anxious about anything because the lilies of the field arrayed in all their glory were nothing in comparison to us and God's love for us? He was anxious? I don't think so. I feel like this is a potential stretch into heresy to say that Jesus might be anxious about someone's material care, especially that of his own mother. So I'm sorry if I'm trashing on a prominent Greek Byzantine or others for this interpretation, but I think the argument is trash. 
Now, St. Augustine doesn't say anything about Jesus being anxious. I don't think he ever did or ever would. But what I do think is curious is that he doesn't seem to attach much significance to the episode. He usually finds extraordinary things to mine from the smallest of passages, but he doesn't do that here. St. Tom Thomas quotes him as saying, Jesus does this, that is, hand his mother to John, to provide, as it were, another son for his mother in his place. He says, and from that hour, the disciple took her unto his own. Unto his own what? Augustine asks. Was not John one of those who said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee? He took her then to his own, that is, not to his farm, for he had none, but to his care, for of this he was master. So John tells us this, Augustine says, so that we can see that Jesus had made him master over Mary. Now, of course, we should honor our mothers. But I just don't think that that was what John was telling us here either, especially since John himself was the very subject of the episode. John wants to remind us that Jesus told him to be sure to take care of his mother because Jesus would no longer be able to take care of her. That's all this exchange was about, mundane material care, nothing more. St. John Chrysostom says that John gave us this episode to show us that we should specially honor our mothers. Now, I love and revere St. John Chrysostom, and we all should, but I have a really hard time seeing why Jesus would need to be telling us this message about the need to honor our mothers while he's suffering and dying on the cross, unless the point were somehow in dispute, or filial piety was generally lacking, or worse, if the commandment from Moses was not in any way crystal clear. And why not tell us that we should honor our fathers, too? If his point is about honoring mothers, why not also bring in the father? Just because we presume Jesus' father was dead, shouldn't we be reminded of honor to our fathers, too, if Jesus' main point is that we should honor our mothers? So, no, actually, these are reasons why we should not think that Jesus is trying to make some point about honoring our mothers. He's making some larger point. St. Ambrose seems to sense a larger point from John's Gospel than simply a maternal custodial transfer. Jesus thought it a greater thing to show him victorious over punishment, fulfilling the offices of piety to his mother, than giving the kingdom of heaven and eternal life to the thief. For if it was religious to give life to the thief, a much richer work of piety it is for a son to honor his mother with such affection. Christ made his testament from the cross and divided the offices of piety between the mother and the disciple. Our Lord made not only a public, but also a domestic testament. In turn, he knows this. Mary, as became the mother of our Lord, stood before the cross when the apostles fled, and with pitiful eyes beheld the wounds of her son. For she looked not on the death of the hostage, but on the salvation of the world. And perhaps knowing that her son's death would bring this salvation, she, who had been the habitation of the king, thought that by her death, she might add to that universal gift. So Ambrose sees some larger significance to this episode, but he seems reluctant to press forward with it. Mary was somehow adding to the universal gift of salvation because she could share in the sorrow of her son's death and see that his death is bringing about the salvation of the world. Well, and the fact that Jesus could attend to this while granting one of the robbers eternal life showed he was greater for stooping to do so. 
I'm not real clear on what he means, but he's at least saying something more than just filial piety. The angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas himself, seems to intuit a larger point too, but he also stops short of making it explicit. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, he begins with this. He says, first, we see his solicitude for the welfare of his disciple, whom he entrusted to his mother. Then we can see his concern for his mother, whom he gave into the keeping of his disciple. But St. Thomas goes beyond this and also sees a direct connection to the wedding at Cana. And St. Thomas sees this connection solely because Jesus addressed his mother, not as mother, but as woman. What I think is fascinating about St. Thomas's reading here is he stops just a hair short of saying something that theologians will say all of these centuries later. He sees that Jesus was not signifying that John should now provide, say, room and board for his mother, but that John should take Mary into his guardianship because he was the disciple who had left everything to follow Jesus. St. Thomas would have needed the smallest of nudges to add this, because you, John, are the symbol of all Christian disciples, and Mary is now the mother of all Christian disciples too. He doesn't say that. No one was there to nudge him. And he doesn't say we can't say that, so we will. Just watch, well, or listen rather. But let's hold that thought for now. We're gonna to come to it soon enough. But before we close out this small section, can I say something in defense of our church fathers? We can't expect the fathers to have solved every possible issue arising from scripture. Our expectations are really, really high because, well, the fathers set them really, really high. They did resolve all of the really important issues that needed to be resolved at that time in the church. And so I wish more and more people would familiarize themselves with them and the issues they solved. We wouldn't be fighting over some of the same issues today if we did this. So let's be clear over this too. An issue only becomes an issue to resolve when people start taking different and even contrary positions regarding some proposition that needs to be resolved. If no issue exists, there's no issue to resolve. And this is why church doctrine develops over time. It's also why church fathers may have glossed over an issue we see today. It takes time for issues to arise, for issues to be debated, to, shall we say, marinate in good thinking, study, and research and for issues to be resolved. So the filial piety issue was never really an issue to them, but it's an issue for us now, and we should be glad we have good reasons to consider it. I'm sure other issues will arise in the future that we really have no idea about now, and people then might look back at us and say, how could they have missed that? But I feel like if you spend time marinating in this filial piety interpretation, that you're gonna have some very serious problems with it. I'm not saying these church fathers or Protestant commentators haven't spent more time marinating over the interpretation, but I will say that if they have done so, they really should start to see the major issues popping up that really don't make sense. Is Jesus really interested in providing for his mother because she has no place to go? Well, why didn't he think of that long before he knew he'd be hanging on the cross? Why didn't he do it at the Last Supper? Why not on their final walk up to Jerusalem about a week earlier? Why not at Bethany in the preceding week? Or a thousand other times and places where she could have been cared for? Isn't it arguably a tad irresponsible for him to wait until his final moment to do so? His final moment. And we could he have done so in a far more explicit, unmistakable uh, word and not 
with terse cryptic ones like he gave us here. Frank Sheed puts it the same way. Sheed was one of the great Catholic apologists of the first half of the 20th century. In his masterwork, To Know Christ Jesus, which I've drawn from many times in these lectures, Sheed has this to say about the filial piety interpretation. If he, Jesus, had merely wanted to arrange for someone to look after his mother once he had left the world, he had plenty of time to do it in the months before. It was not a sudden idea come to interrupt the offering of his redemptive sacrifice. If he chose to say it at this moment, it was because it belonged to the redemptive process. And there seems something awkward about Jesus making arrangements for Mary, as if she were some kind of possession of his. If, as some people seem to think, Jesus was just making his last will and testament, then why is it that he had to will away his mother? He had no possessions yet. The last of what he had had just been gambled away by the soldiers. So the last thing he owns is Mary. It doesn't make sense. She's not a possession, some kind of chattel. People didn't will away their mothers back then any more than they do now. And what makes us think she was old and feeble anyhow? First of all, she wasn't old, even by ancient standards. If she got married in her teens, then the mother of a 33-year-old son would only be in her mid-40s. Second, she wasn't feeble. Following the Mother Angelica principle about St. Joseph, old men don't walk to Egypt, the same thing could be said about Mary. Old women don't walk from Galilee to Jerusalem, or that 17-mile, 3,500-foot climb up the road from Jericho that she and Jesus and his disciples and the other women had just hiked up a few days before. And yes, a sword may have pierced her heart, as Simeon foretold, but all evidence suggests she braved the sword and was not crumpled by it. St. Alphonsus Liguori says those dishonor her who think of her weeping and fainting at the cross. The evidence is to the contrary, and he quotes St. Ambrose in support. I read her of her standing, not of her weeping. Strength and sorrow are not opposed to each other. Indeed, the deepest of sorrows is handled by the strongest of souls. In his classic, The Passion and the Death of Jesus Christ, St. Alphonsus Liguori helps rescue Mary from any sense of feebleness. She was the one who drew near to the cross, offering her pangs for the salvation of men, sharing with perfect resignation all the pains and insults which her son suffered in his death. Plus, why would we think Mary has no place to go at all, no home of her own back in Nazareth, or even of any family member? She and Joseph had plenty of kinfolk, as they were from the house of David, which was prominent enough that all its family members had to report to some census ordered by some guy named Corinius some 30 years earlier, when she and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which was maybe six miles away from there. She could have walked there that afternoon. Yeah, there was no room for them at the inn when she was about to deliver Jesus, but she was in a, quote, house when the Magi came with gifts to see her. Is it all that hard to imagine that one of her kinfolk in Bethlehem could have put her up in some grandma flat? And do we really think Mary would have stayed there, even if it had the luxury of a separate kitchen and a covered port for a donkey? Forgive me for sounding ridiculous, but the whole idea strikes me as ridiculous, even if we didn't have direct evidence of Mary's kinfolk standing right there next to her at the cross. But we do have that evidence, because as, as we've seen in these lectures, it's her own sister-in-law appears to have been standing right there next to her. Had the sister-in-law said, 
Uh, look, Mary, I know you don't have a place to stay, but we're really tight on quarters, and no, you can't stay with us. That seems farcical, especially when, if you recall, Mary's sister-in-law appears to be among the women who could afford to fund Jesus' travels, quote, out of her means, as Luke tells us. She was tight on space. She couldn't be generous with Jesus' own mother. I don't think so. She probably owned several granny flats with separate kitchens and donkey ports. And we haven't even talked about the awkwardness for John. Remember, his own mother is standing at the foot of the cross, too. Jesus now tells him he has another mother. He now has two mothers he needs to care for. What was his mother thinking? Um, who comes first here? And what was John thinking? I have to feed them both now? And then his mother is thinking, my grown son is moving back into our house? Oy they! And then John is thinking, I'm going to live in the basement and have two mothers living above me? Oy they, too. A Jewish comedian could work a whole shtick with this. But let me take on a serious point for just a minute. There's been a most unfortunate divide between Catholics and Protestants over the perpetual virginity of Mary. Catholics have said, consistent with the earliest of church fathers, that Mary was not only a virgin in conceiving Christ, but she remained a virgin, having become a kind of Ark of the Covenant that was ever pure and off limits. The Protestant reformers agreed that Mary was a virgin in conceiving Christ, but they contended there was no reason to think she always stayed that way, especially since we hear about the, quote, brothers of our Lord. Well, doesn't this episode create a problem for this latter view? Where were those brothers if Jesus had to entrust his mother to John? Why would Jesus entrust his mother to John if, in fact, Jesus had any brothers around who could, on the one hand, take care of her, or on the other hand, bequeath her to someone else? And that doesn't even take into account the fact that the very mother of one of those alleged brothers, the James, was standing there right next to Mary. That's a real problem to get past. Now, I've seen many Protestant Commentators, modern Protestant commentators, answer this question by saying that none of Jesus' other brothers were believers, at least not like John was, the beloved disciple. So, they say, there were no other brothers that Jesus could entrust Mary with. So, he entrusted her to John instead. In other words, Jesus had brothers, but none of whom he could appropriately entrust to Mary not even to his alleged brother James, whose letter is in the canon of the New Testament because he became a believer only later. And they cite to John chapter 7, verse 5, where he says, quote, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And they cite to Mark 3, Matthew 12, and Luke 8 about the so-called brothers of Jesus. Now I need to say, this is a dispute that needs to be resolved separately on whether Jesus had any brothers in the way we think of brothers, as blood brothers or half-brothers, as sons from the same mother. We're not going to resolve that here. That's an issue that depends on the term brother, which, as I say, is not an issue here, but only as an explanation of why Jesus was entrusting Mary to John and not to some other brother. But I do think the issue has been resolved, and I can refer you to a lot of good scholarship on the subject, including most recently to Dr. Brant Petrie and his 2018 book on Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. You can go and debate him on the subject if you want, and at your peril. But to return to our point here about how to interpret this passage in John, we really think, we need to know one way or the other 
whether Jesus had any brothers or not, who were able to care for Mary, and why he and not they were obligated to entrust her for, to, to John. That dispute really is a side dispute. The only issue here is whether Jesus is really entrusting Mary to John in any material sense at all, or whether he's doing something entirely different. If the episode has nothing to do with any filial duty of a son to his mother and his care for her earthly concerns, a duty we might reasonably assume he's already taken care of long before his final moments on the cross, then we really don't care whether Jesus had any eligible brothers or not. He was doing something entirely different, and that's what we should be paying attention to. So like I was saying, when you start to think of all this for just a little bit longer, and completely apart from whether Jesus had any brothers, you start to see a lot of problems with this filial piety interpretation. Neither John nor Mary could possibly care less about the things of this earth, where they're going to be housed, where their next meal is coming from. These are two people who knew deep in the recesses of their hearts that God will look after their material needs, that he who spins the lilies in all their glory and whose providence and generosity know no limits and who asks us to trust him in the tiniest aspects of life will provide for all our needs, all of their needs, with a super abundancy we can't even imagine. Are we really to think that the Lord of the universe hanging on the cross said these words so that John would take Mary back to his house along with his own mother and give Mary some nice soup and hot tea and wrap a shawl around her so she could sit in a rocking chair by the nice warm fire. I'm not the only one who has such astonishment. Father Brown does too. He says this, I think it absolutely incredible that such a dramatically revelatory scene involving Jesus's mother in a new relationship with the beloved disciple concludes simply with his taking her to his house. Now, this is a pretty extreme statement for the very cautious Father Brown to be making. He never seems to find hardly any scriptural interpretation as, quote, absolutely incredible. But he does here, and I at least find that amusing and worthy of independent reflection. Father Brown thinks the filial piety interpretation is absolutely incredible? That's saying something. And here's how he says it further. Joining disciples are not of this world says Jesus in chapter 17, and what will happen to them in terms of material welfare until they die is an issue that the joining Jesus regards as extraneous, says Jesus in chapter 21. To interpret the relationship between the joining Jesus, I have to stop for a minute, notice how he says this, the joining Jesus and the joining disciples, that's something that modern scriptural scholars like to say because they like to hedge bets about who the author of the text really was. And so you talk about textual themes instead of textual actual authors, which I have to say kind of bugs me. But I want you to hear how it sounds because this is the way these scholars all talk to each other. So as I was quoting him, to interpret the relationship between the joining Jesus and his mother in terms of filial cause is both to reduce joining thought to the level of the flesh and to ignore the distancing from concerns of the natural family that took place in Cana in chapter two. In short, Father Brown instructs us that the one thing this episode can't be about is the simple depiction of Jesus finding a secure place for his mother. As if, as Father Brown says, as if providing lodgings 
were the ultimate purpose of Jesus's life. When Jesus immediately thereafter said, quote, it is finished, he surely meant something more important than this. Now this leaves us, I think, with a most uncomfortable conclusion. Is the filial piety interpretation wrong? Did the church fathers and Protestant commentators misinterpret this passage? Does the passage have really nothing at all to do with Jesus entrusting his mother to his beloved disciple as a good son was supposed to do? From what Father Brown says, and from the points we've been ruminating on so far, I think the answer to all these questions is quite arguably yes. They've all missed the point of the episode. Lots of other scholars and theologians are saying the same thing. We have, shall we say, a bona fide issue here in need of resolution. Now, I'd like to be a mediator here and say like a good Irishman might say, well, I agrees with the both of you. Can't we say both and instead of either or? Can we say that the passage on its face is at least about Jesus's filial piety, but it's also about something more? I'm not sure about that. I think that's a really, really hard question, and I'm not about to answer that here. Not only because we have really smart and holy people that take different positions on the matter, but I do think it's an open question whether the filial piety interpretation is just plain wrong and misses the whole point of what Jesus is saying or not. That really might be the case. Well, let's put that question aside and let's go back to Jesus' words again. And let's look at them with sharp focus. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let's start with the following, following seven details in this passage. First, in recounting this scene, John never mentions Mary by name. He just refers to her as Jesus's mother. Second, John doesn't name the disciple standing there. He just refers to him as the disciple whom he loved. We all assume it's John, but just so we're clear, John doesn't actually say it's he himself. Third, when Jesus is speaking, he doesn't address Mary as mother or mom or mommy. That word would have been Emma or Im. Just as we knew his, that Jesus called his father in heaven, Abba. Abba and Ima. Instead, he dressed her with the somewhat rude-sounding word, woman. Fourth, Jesus first addresses Mary, not John. That fact alone causes many scholars to reject the filial piety interpretation because John would be the first one Jesus would be addressing if Jesus is only transferring his mother to him. In fact, for that matter, if that's only what he's doing, giving care of Mary to John, then Jesus would only need to address himself to John. Any man struggling for breath on a cross, including Jesus, would choose brevity of words if possible. The fact that he said this in more words meant he had more things to say. Fifth, Jesus tells his mother to behold your son. Again, he doesn't refer to John or even as the disciple or even as the son of Zebedee when Zebedee's wife was standing there next to him. He just says, your son. Sixth, Jesus addresses the disciple by telling him to behold his mother, that is, John's mother, 
as distinct from John's own mother. Finally, he says, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, a lot of translators and even church fathers have noticed an issue with this last phrase. We just heard St. Augustine refer to it in the passage above. The passage doesn't actually say home, although that's what translators have added here. The more literal interpretation is simply to his own. His own what? Well, if you're going to read this passage as referring to nice warm cottages with rocking chairs, then yes, you're going to say home. But if you're going to read this passage as referring to something infinitely larger, then you're going to say to his own heart or being or soul. St. Bede in the middle of the 8th century puts it nicely this way. We should read it as to his own in qua, he says, not to his own home, for John was one of those who said, quote, we have left everything and followed you. Rather, the disciple took Mary to his own guardianship to eagerly and respectfully care for her. So, St. Bede makes the astute observation that John couldn't have taken Mary to his home because he had no home. He had given it up to follow Jesus. So, Bede gets the Gimlet Eye Award for that observation. So, these are seven independent points that can be made about these dozen or so words John uses in this episode. Over the last fairly recent years, a lot of scholars have stared really hard at each of the above points, and they've all been drawn more or less to the same conclusion. You can't possibly read this account in John and come away thinking it's about filial piety. John is always much larger than John, as it were, and especially so here. John is the one who's always giving us unique signposts to something else, something that only Christians would understand, because that's who he's writing to, remember? Christians. So when John is giving us particular words and particular descriptions, he's telling us that he really wants us to pay attention to those words and descriptions. Not a single word exists in his gospel that does not have some special significance. That is the Joanine way as the academics would say. And that's why we're not done and will remain doing until the end of time, studying and analyzing the particular words and particular descriptions John used in his gospel. So far, scholars have come up with some pretty amazing insights, having had the benefit of standing on the shoulders of many who have preceded them. And others in the future will stand on their shoulders and see even farther and deeper. For instance, Modern scholars have noticed various patterns in John. They notice he likes to set things up like this. Someone sees something, someone says something, and then someone beholds something, which is really important to him and to us. A good example is in the first chapter of John's Gospel, when John the Baptist encounters Christ. It says, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, we have this pattern with Jesus' last words. It says he saw his mother and the disciple, and then he said words to them. And those words are to have a kind of behold feature to them. In fact, that's the exact word he uses in this passage. Behold your son, and behold your mother. The behold is in some afterthought, like, oh, I forgot to mention this to the two of you before. Behold 
is a revelatory word that really has no synonym in the English language. It basically means look, but it connotes something special, something important, and in a positive way. No one says, behold, that car accident. In fact, people today don't even really use the word behold anymore. It's one of those words that's quickly dropping from common usage. Not even we lawyers even use that use anymore, but we use a lot of old words from time to time because of their long accepted meanings. But back to John and his account. He tells us that St. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. So when John, the gospel writer, is telling us to behold something, it's John's special signal to his readers that something really important is happening, and it's not what you might otherwise think. So the behold here is not your average, hey, look, Mary, you see that disciple of mine standing next to you? And hey, look, John, you see that woman standing there next to you? Those would be strange rhetorical questions. Of course Mary knows John is standing there next to her. She wouldn't need Jesus in his final agony to be Captain Obvious and point that out to her. And John doesn't need Jesus to waste any breaths to tell him that either. So what follows must surely be something of signal importance. So if we're supposed to know that something really important is happening here, maybe we should ask ourselves, is there some clue in the words he's choosing? Is there a history to these words? History as in something he's already told us about earlier. Well, this is exactly what scholars have begun to ask, and they're led inescapably to an earlier reference. Father Brown gets into the point this way. After noticing that John tells us that Jesus begins to speak upon seeing his mother and the disciple, in the other Gospels, the women are standing afar and are looking at Jesus. Here, Jesus is the one looking, and the two figures are near. And he speaks first to his mother, after mentioning her first, to signal that she is the primary concern of the episode. The disciple will then be seen to be more important in the gospel role. But we would not guess what her role is without a common link to the last time he spoke about her. The only other time John mentions Mary is in, in his entire gospel, and he never calls her by name in his gospel, is when he refers to her as the mother of Jesus. And that was at the wedding feast at Cana, which marked the start of his ministry. Remember that exchange? They have no wine. She says nothing else. There's no begging, no pleading, just an affirmative statement. They have no wine. Now, obviously, this is where a lot of the deep drillers of Scripture start drilling, because there's so much going on here. A wedding prefigurement of what the prophet said about God coming to marry his people, reunification, a celebration, a shocking abundance of generosity, and for those appreciative imbibers, wine. And most remarkably, John very subtly tells us that this event occurred on the seventh day he began his public ministry. Yeah, the seventh day, the day of the new creation. Get it? I could go on and on, but I won't. You need to go to Dr. Scott Hahn for that. It's utterly incredible, and Scott has some marvelous insights on that. Get his commentary in the Gospel of John for starters. I, I, I mean, not right now. Do it later. I want you to stay here with me. But we need to pay attention to Jesus' response and the particular word John uses to convey it. 
O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's this O woman response? Who calls their woman O mother? Well, I mean, apart from some cheeky teenager who senses some threat of authority from mom in the making and wants a chance to contest it. It's a strange phrase for a son to use to a mother. And it was strange in antiquity, too. It may not be strange in any other context, including antiquity, for someone who is not a son to address a woman as woman. But it is way strange for someone who is a son to address his mother as woman. That just doesn't happen now. It hasn't been noticed in any ancient writings ever. Father Brown's the one who tells us this. He points out that some scriptural scribes of a later period were so bothered by this apparent rudeness that they declined to use it in copying versions of John's gospel. They didn't think it was sufficiently reverent to Mary. They imagined reading it to say, as some slob in a tavern might say, Woman, get me more grog! So the scribes left it out. But let's follow the Cana story a bit further, because that's where we might just get some insight on why Jesus was referring to his mother as woman at the cross also. So remember Jesus' words back to Mary when she made the observation that the wedding couple was out of wine? He said his hour had not come. That's right, it had not yet come. Several times throughout John's Gospel, Jesus tells us that his hour had not yet come. But then finally in chapter 12, he tells us the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So by hour, Jesus is referring to the time when the Father will glorify him, and when through his death, he will unite those who follow him with the Father. Our capstone summary of the purpose of this hour, of course, is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus' hour is a signpost to Genesis, because that's when Adam had fallen. It's when Adam had separated himself from God, and when God promised Adam that he would offer a way to restore that separation. And here is where also we find that curious reference to the woman. In the first part of the book of Genesis, chapter 2, we're told about Eve, the mother of all living. And we're told about the fall and about how God quizzed the woman and asked her what she had done and how he, she had said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate it. And what God then said to the snake, not to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So God is telling the snake, that is Satan, who took the form of a snake, I will put enmity between you and Eve and between your demons and her offspring. Well, who might that offspring be? Any particular offspring come to mind? How about all offspring taken as a class together? Well, yes, in a sense, the devil and his minions will always be at odds with every human being. 
but it might at this point refer to one particular offspring way down the road, one particular anointed offspring way down the road, born of a clan specially prepared to bring that offspring into our world whose bloodline ran through Father Abraham and King David? Well, the passage then continues with this arresting line. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this translation I'm reading from is from the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, which I like because it tries to be as literal as possible to the original words, while still keeping the voice of the English language. There are other translations, of course, and I'm, I'm not faulting any of them or saying that this translation is always better than all the other translations. It, it just certainly isn't true. But I point this out because this translation understands the pronouns a certain way, while other translations put the pronouns a different way. This translation I've been reading says, he shall bruise your head, that is the snake's head, and you, the snake, shall bruise his heel. Now, with that translation, the he seems to point to, shall we just cut to the chase here and say, Jesus shall bruise your head, and you, the devil, shall bruise his, that is Jesus's heel. But it's not clear that the translation should use the male pronouns, he and his. And that helps eliminate one problem with the translation, assuming it is in fact referring to Jesus. How would the devil bruise Jesus's heel? There are ways that might be understood, but you can see all the distinction you'd have to make. Jesus voluntarily suffered it. The bruise is really not to him, but to his disciples and the members of the body and so forth. Now, the Latin Vulgate, which St. Jerome gave us, translates the same passage as she shall bruise the devil's head and the devil shall bruise her heel. Hmm. This makes for very interesting speculation. Who is the she the prophecy is referring to? She being one of Eve's offspring? And this translation is by no means an outlier. St. Augustine uses a translation that's even older than this one, and it translates the word as she too. So who is the she since we're forced to ask the question? Well, it's the new woman. And who was the woman's seed? Well, it'd be Jesus. Jesus would be the one who'd be at enmity with the devil. And it will be the woman who will bruise his head. The Orthodox Jewish translation says, crush his head. I like that term better, especially as to snakes, since I hate snakes. And it too reads this as being done by the woman. And because Mary was mortal, she could be bruised by the devil in return. So this original Eve would be the mother of all the living, and this other woman, one of Eve's offspring, would be the one who crushes the head of Satan. And how would this woman crush it? By delivering the Messiah who would put an end to Adam's curse and become the new Adam who would restore man's relationship with God. God becomes man to suffer and die and to help man reunite with God. And God became that man by becoming the offspring of Eve, and more particularly, the offspring of Mary. From one woman to another woman came the salvation of the world and the restoration of the human race to God. So, back to Cana. O woman, my hour has not yet come, says he who has come to deliver us from Adam's sin to the woman who delivered him so that he might deliver us from Adam's sin. At Cana, the woman tells him there is no wine, and Jesus says his hour had not come. And now here on the cross, 
he tells the woman something, knowing that now his hour had finally come. So what does this tell us at this point? It tells us that Jesus is making a point much, much larger, larger than the two individuals standing before him. His point is not simply about Mary and John. It's about who Mary and John represent. Mary is the woman prophesied in Genesis. John is the beloved disciple whom all followers of Jesus must imitate. Father Brown likes the insight of theologian Heinz Sherman, who says, the scene does not primarily concern the two figures in themselves, but the new relationship that exists between them. Father Brown says that the passage must be read to acknowledge that Jesus is declaring a new relationship to exist between the woman and the disciple. This new relationship, he says, is the bringing of a natural family, Jesus' mother, into the relationship of discipleship by making her the mother of the beloved disciple who takes her into his own realm of discipleship. Now, many theologians, as we'll see in just a minute, think it's still even more than that, but that's okay. It's at least important to recognize that Jesus is not offering words of filial piety. He's emphasizing the new relationship between John and Mary going forward. So what is that new relationship? One great theologian I'm gonna to turn to now is Father Ignace de la Patrie. Father de la Patrie was a Jesuit priest and a Belgian theologian who left a profound mark on biblical studies when he died in 2003, having taught for years at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. Among his specialties, the Gospel of John and the mystery of Mary in relation to it. Now, Father de la Patrie tracks all we've been saying so far about Mary and her unique title of woman. So if Mary is now the mother of this disciple, he asks, what is exactly does that mean? He says this, Jesus dying on the cross reveals that his mother as the woman, with all the biblical resonance of this word, will now also be the mother of the disciple. Because this latter, as the representative of all the disciples of Jesus, will now be the son of his mother. So what does he mean by all that? How does that relate to her motherhood? Well, he answers it this way. In other words, he, Jesus, reveals a new dimension of Mary's motherhood, a spiritual dimension, and a new role of the mother of Jesus in the economy of salvation. But in a correlative way, he reveals at the same time that the first task of the disciples will consist in being sons of the mother of Jesus. So, that's an arresting thought. The point of Jesus' assignment is that all of his disciples will become sons of his mother. And this has to be, right? I mean, if Jesus is committing Mary to John, and John is the beloved disciple, then what he's necessarily saying is that all of his beloved disciples will see Mary as their mother. Well, why is that? Well, because she's the woman, which means she's the mother of all the living. And there are a couple of points in the Gospel of John itself that seem particularly designed to make this point. First, back in chapter 12, John recounts that cryptic remark Joseph Caiaphas made when he was squabbling with the Pharisees about what to do with Jesus. Remember, he offers that line saying it would be better if one man died than the whole nation were to perish. Well, Caiaphas offers this prophecy there. He says Jesus should die 
to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Get that? To gather into one the children of God. So where in fact did that happen? It happened at the foot of the cross. And who was standing at the foot of the cross? The woman, right there at the foot of the cross. Mary became the embodiment of the mother who recalls her children from exile and gathers them at the foot of the cross to form the new people of God in unity and stability. This is how Father Stefano Manelli puts it in his 1989 classic, All Generations Shall Call Me Blessed, where he tag teams with Father Della Padre to unpack Jesus' words to Mary. So let me repeat. Caiaphas says that Jesus must die so that the children of God may be gathered together. And boy, was he speaking the truth when he said this, even for malicious reasons. So who makes them children of God? Well, Jesus does, of course, by his death. And who is the mother of these very children? Well, Mary is, because she was the mother of Jesus. You need to ponder that point and let it sink in. Mary's the woman who gave birth to Jesus, whose death caused the children of God to be gathered together. But Father de la Padre makes a second point. Let's look, he says, exactly at that place in John's Gospel where John recounts that famous detail about how the soldiers had to contend with the seamless tunic of Christ. The tunic was seamless, meaning it was not divisible. Now this passage has always been regarded by church fathers and others all the way down as a sign of the unity of the church. Christ's tunic is seamless. It can't be divided. Christ's kingdom is seamless. It can't be divided either. So right after telling us about the unity of the church as manifested by Jesus' seamless tunic, John then tells us about the unity of relationship between Mary and John. The two of them then become the prefiguration of the unity of all believers, a veritable embodiment of, yes, the seamless tunic. Pretty cool when you think about it. John tells us about the seamless tunic as a way of telling us about the seamless unity in the church. And then he tells us about the new relationship between Mary and John as a way of telling us about two individuals who now embody that seamless unity. That is so John-like for him to do. I like saying that better than Joanine. But John keeps the point going. What's the very next thing that John tells us happens after he tells us what Jesus says to Mary and John? John closes the episode with this. He says, quote, after this, meaning after Jesus had just finished addressing Mary and John, after this, Jesus knew that all was finished. Finished. Get it? Look at the tunic. Look at the church. They are indivisible. Now it is finished, says Jesus. He had just formed the church. And then he said, I thirst. Someone hands him some sour wine on a branch of hyssop, which, by the way, is what God commanded the Jews to mark their doors with at Passover to keep the angel of death away. And that was when Jesus proceeded to say those words, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and died. Now, if you recall from Lecture 7 on the Crucifixion, the it in it is finished arguably refers to the end of the Paschal sacrifice. The Jewish Passover meal ends, the church begins. How cool is that? But back to Mary. 
As Della Pottery says, Mary's divine motherhood is thus extended to the whole church. He puts it this way. As an individual person, Mary is the mother of Jesus and becomes the mother of us all, the mother of the church. But her corporeal motherhood in relation to Jesus is a prolonged and a spiritual motherhood toward believers and toward the church. And the spiritual motherhood of Mary becomes the image and the form of the motherhood of the church. If I realize this is pretty heavy stuff, and some of you are wondering how we got to such a sweeping conclusion so fast from Jesus' words that appear on a superficial reading, seem to just entrust Mary to John and John to Mary. So let's take a breath and let Father Manelli explain it for us just a bit. The point John is making in his gospel is that Mary and John each represent personal and communal roles. I don't know how you can get out of that interpretation. It seems obvious when you stop and think about it because of the words Jesus uses to speak to them. He doesn't use their names, which he could have readily done, and which would have signaled something personal. He didn't say, Mother, behold John, and John, behold your mother. That sounds very different from what he actually said, and that might make a stronger case for the filial piety interpretation if he had said that. But he didn't. He didn't use these words, which tells us that we should be paying attention to the words he actually used to address them in calling Mary woman and John disciple. Each of them is a person, of course, but each of them is representing a communal role, not a personal role. And here's how Father Manelli puts it. As the mother of Jesus, Mary is a single and unique person. As the spouse of Christ, she also enjoys a moral or communal personality, and as such, she is the church. For St. John, it is the same. He's a single person as a beloved disciple of Jesus but he also represents all the disciples of Jesus and therefore represents a church. Now, don't we see this happen in our everyday experience all the time? I don't mean in novels where some character is intended to signify some group, like in George Orwell's Animal Farm, where, say, the pigs are perfectly used to signify communists. I'm not talking about every, I'm talking about everyday ordinary ceremonial activities where we single out individuals for the purpose of recognizing the wider group they represent. I'd like to recognize Officer Smith here as representative of all the good policemen of our fine city, or make it teachers, or garbage men, whatever. We do it all the time and in thousands of different ways. And Jesus did it here. He gave Mary, the new Eve, to John, the new Christian, and John, the new Christian, to Mary, the new Eve. But of course, we should naturally say, how could we miss that? Now, the beauty of theology is often found in the beauty of language. And thankfully, we have many other theologians and now popes saying the same thing, but in slightly different ways. Take the venerable Bishop Fulton Sheen, for instance, who's a great namesake for any of your future kids, as we've seen. Whatever mystery presents itself by Jesus' seeming unconcern towards his mother at Cana, he says, all of that came to an end on Calvary. What seemed an alienation of affection was in reality a deepening of affection. Mary died to the love of Jesus at Cana, he said, and recovered Jesus again at Calvary with his mystical body, which he redeemed. I'm going to quote here extensively from him because, well, I can't say it any better than he does. And this passage is from his 1958 spiritual classic, Life of Christ, which sums up the points we've been making. 
It cost Mary something to have men as sons. She could give birth to Jesus in joy in a stable, but she could give birth to Christians only on Calvary, and in great labors great enough to make her queen of martyrs. The fiat she pronounced when she became the mother of God now became another fiat, like unto creation, in the immensity of what she brought forth. It was also a fiat which so enlarged her infections as to increase her pains. The bitterness of Eve's curse, that women would bring forth children in sorrow, was now fulfilled, and not by the opening of a womb, but the piercing of a heart, as Simeon had foretold. It was the greatest of all honors to be the mother of Christ, but it was also a great honor to be the mother of Christians. There was no room in the inn for that first birth, but Mary had the whole world for her second. Recall that when our Lord spoke to John, he did not refer to him as John, for then he would have only been the son of Zebedee. Rather, in him, all humanity was commended to Mary, who became the mother of men, not by metaphor or figure of speech, but by pangs of birth. Nor was it sentimental solicitude that made our Lord give John to his mother, for John's mother was present at the cross. He needed no mother from a human point of view. The import of the words was spiritual. It became fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, when Christ's mystical body became visible and operative. Mary, as the mother of redeemed and regenerated humanity, was in the midst of the apostles. Note again his explanation on why Jesus calls his mother woman and his beloved disciple son. This woman became the mother of all Christians. This son represented all Christians who could now be redeemed and regenerated in and through Christ's death. Listen to Frank Sheed as he makes the same point. Mary was being given as mother not only to John, but to all the children of Eve. The redemption Christ was winning for the race as a whole must be applied to each man individually. In the application, Mary was to play an essential part. Mary's cousin Elizabeth prophesied this essential part when she told her early on, Blessed are you among all women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so it was right that Mary herself could exclaim, All generations shall call me blessed. That's all generations. That's us. That's why we call her the Blessed Virgin Mary. And Mary said this not for anything she did, but because of, as she says, quote, the Lord who has done great things for her. So yes, the Lord has done great things for Mary, and for Mary in particular. My own personal patroness, as I've spoken of before, St. Catherine of Siena, has this wonderfully poetic way of explaining Mary's special role. This word, Jesus, was engrafted in her flesh, this blessed and sweet field of Mary as the seed that is cast on the earth. Through the warmth of the sun, it germinates and draws out the flower, and the fruit and the shell remains on the earth. So truly, it was through the warmth and the fire of divine charity, which God had for the human race, casting the seed of his word in the field of Mary. O oh, blessed and sweet Mary, you've given us the flower of the sweet Jesus. And when did this blessed flower produce the fruit? When he was grafted on the wood of the most holy cross. Then we received perfect life. Now, if you think I've been too quick to say all of this is immediately clear, you have a point. It sure seems clear to us now that we can focus laser-like on the issue through the benefit of others who've pointed their lasers on it. But Pope Benedict XVI reminds us, like we were saying before, that these insights have not always been so clear. 
They take time and sharp thinking to, de to develop, to marinate, as I like to say. I like that word because I like good barbecue and because I think it makes for good theology too. I'll even go so far as to say that good barbecue and good theology go well together, and good wine like at Cana. And like in heaven, where Jesus himself had promised us at the Last Supper, he would drink that wine with us there. So seeing Mary as the new Eve, because she's linked to Jesus as the new Adam, Pope Benedict says, is admittedly a concept that has developed over time. It was gradually explored in the context of the church's faith, is how he puts it. It wasn't until the 16th century, for instance, that theologians began to see the connection between Mary and the woman in the book of Revelation. We now see that that woman is supposed to represent all of Israel and the whole church. And of course, this is exactly what Mary represents in being designated the mother of beloved disciples. And so it fell to Pope Benedict's predecessor, Pope St. John Paul II, to develop this notion further so that Pope Benedict in turn could rely on it. In that encyclical on the dignity of women we mentioned at the outset, John Paul explains that just as Eve was the witness to the beginning and the new creation, so also Mary was the witness to a new beginning and a new creation. As he says, quote, since she herself as the first of the redeemed in salvation history is a new creation, she is full of grace. He says, the event at Nazareth highlights a form of union with the living God, which can only belong to the woman, Mary the union between mother and son. The Virgin of Nazareth truly becomes the mother of God. As philosophers would say, it was Mary qua woman that made her the Theotokos, that is the mother of God. But it was also Mary qua woman that made her mother of the church. All of this allows Benedict to explain Jesus' captivating words on the cross this way. These words spoken by Jesus as he hung upon the cross continue to be fulfilled in many concrete ways. They're constantly repeated to both mother and disciple, and each person is called to relive them in his own life, as the Lord is allotted. Again and again, the disciple is asked to take Mary as an individual and as the church into his own home, and thus to carry out Jesus's final instruction. The implications of this are really breathtaking when you stop and take a breath and reflect on this. And I really don't think St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Thomas Aquinas, or any of the other church fathers we discussed above would have any disagreement with this whatsoever. In fact, I think they'd fully endorse it and are kicking themselves for not having thought of it earlier. Well, they're not actually kicking themselves. They're saints in heaven celebrating it. Those who are alive today and haven't noticed this should now rejoice and celebrate it too. The reason Mary is given the titles Mother of God and Mother of the Church depend not only on the fact that she was a woman, but on the fact that she was a human being with the closest union with God of any human being this side of the Garden of Eden. I'll let John Paul explain. The dignity of every human being and the vocation corresponding to that dignity find their definitive measure in union with God. He actually emphasized these last words in his text, in union with God. He continues, Mary, the woman of the Bible, is the most complete expression of this dignity and vocation. For no human being, male or female, created in the image and likeness of God, 
can in any way attain fulfillment apart from this image and likeness. So, Mary is the most complete expression of the dignity and vocation of every human being, and no other human being, male or female, is like her. You can't get more superlative than that. Some nine centuries earlier, St. Hildegard of Bingham said essentially the same thing. Because a woman brought death, a bright maiden overcame it. And so the highest blessing in all of creation lies in the form of a woman, since God has become man in a sweet and blessed virgin. And all this is expressed in those few words Jesus gave to his mother and to John in his second to last words from the cross, at least as recorded by John. Woman behold, son behold. My goodness, how they must have so beheld. And we do too, all these centuries later. We began this four-part series of lectures on the women at the cross with me asking the question, why women? Why were women at the cross and not men? That is, among Jesus' followers. I feel like I haven't really answered that question. I still don't know why, among Jesus' followers, women stayed with him through Calvary, but not men, except for, say, John. We got to know the who a bit better, who of these women were with him through Calvary, and I'll take them out of the order that we discussed them. First, there was Mary, Jesus' mother, and we concluded this series by talking about her and how Jesus made us to see that she is the mother of all Christians and the mother of the church. She was not there, so Jesus could tell her where she would get shelter next. Second, there was Mary Magdalene, a woman who'd become known and venerated through the ages as the Apostle of the Apostles. Whether she was also the sinner woman discussed elsewhere through Scripture, as has been commonly assumed, at least in the West, seems highly debatable and should not be assumed. Third, there was mother, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. We don't know a lot about her, and we don't know for sure who her sons, James and Joseph, were, but many have thought that James was one of Jesus' apostles, James the Lesser as opposed to James the Greater, and that Joseph, or Joseph as the Gospels also call him, was the third bishop of Jerusalem. So these are three Marys who for certain were at Calvary. There's Mary of Clopas, we discussed, and th some think she was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. But there are others who think she was an entirely different Mary, the wife of Clopas, and that she and Clopas, who also went by the Greek nickname Cleopas, and was the disciple mentioned as walking with Jesus on the way to Emmaus, became missionaries together. But more significantly, because we don't have the benefit of an Oxford comma, then Mary of Clopas should really be identified as Jesus' own Aunt Mary, who was his aunt because she was the sister-in-law of his mother Mary. These relations seem certain. The particular identities of the women are less certain, if we go simply by their different gospel names. So that's why, as we've said, we're not sure whether we're talking about three different women, or four different women, or five, if we now pause to mention the other woman identified as being at Calvary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Remember, she was that cheeky mother who wanted her sons, Andrew and James, that would be James the Greater, to sit at Jesus' right hand when he entered his kingdom. Well, some think she's blended in with the other women we've mentioned. The predominant view, so far as I could tell, is that she's an entirely different woman than the others mentioned. The same with Salome, whom we've discussed too. She's named, 
but were not entirely sure whether she was one of the other women identified, such as the real name of the unnamed mother of the sons of Zebedee, or whether she was an entirely separate person too. But then there's Susanna. We don't know much about her, but we know she was not one of the other women we've been talking about, but that she was likely wealthy because she had followed Jesus from Galilee and was among those who supported Jesus out of her own means. And then there's Jonna, who I like to think has been rescued from oblivion because there's a whole lot of information we now know about her because we know she was the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa. And she may also have been the Junia, who spent some time in jail with Paul in Rome and whom Paul called her, along with Andronicus, prominent among the apostles. I sure hope her popularity grows and grows from time here on out. So we have maybe a good eight different women whom the Gospels mention by name who were with Jesus at his crucifixion. But don't think they were the only women who were there. Remember, Matthew and Mark tell us that many other women were there who had come up with Jesus to Jerusalem from Galilee, where they had, quote, followed him and ministered to him. And don't forget Mary of nearby Bethany and maybe her sister Martha. They aren't mentioned, but it seems likely they were there too. I do wonder about Lazarus, though. Where was he? On the other hand, if anyone had cause to be scarce that day, it was he. John tells us that just a couple of days before, the chief priests wanted to kill him along with Jesus, too. But if we add Mary and Martha in, we get ten named or identified women who were with Jesus at his crucifixion and who held every bit of the horror and, in a strange way, the beauty of it. Ten, or Yod, the biblical number representing the completeness of order in a kingdom, the building block of creation for the word. But again, numerology makes for interesting speculation, but it's not as interesting as the point all of these numerical representations make here. It's the women who are mentioned, not men. Why is that? I don't really know. Well, I don't really know from the scriptural accounts. They are descriptive, not explanatory. I do like to reflect on what other great saints have said, not about why women were at Calvary, but about the particular nature of women in general, which may offer reasons why they were at Calvary. There's this great observation from St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, Edith Stein, the Jewish convert and Carmelite nun who died at Auschwitz. She said this, Women naturally seeks to embrace that which is living, personal, and whole. To cherish, guard, protect, nourish, and advance growth is her natural maternal yearning. Relevant to this is another matter. Abstraction, in every sense, is alien to the feminine nature. I love this. It's not hard to see why all of these women at the cross were at the cross. They sought to embrace that which is living, personal, and whole, namely Jesus, the Lord of the universe. They had sought to cherish him, to guard him, to protect him, to nourish him, to advance growth in him all the time they were following him throughout Galilee and up to Jerusalem. And they did so as part of their natural maternal yearning. They didn't follow Jesus because of some abstract notion about spirituality. That, as St. Therese Benedicta says, would have been alien to their nature. They followed him as a person because they could see, hear, and touch him as a person, a flesh and blood reality, not some abstraction. 
That would have been part of their female nature, as distinct from what men have due to their male nature. Dare I point out something that strikes at least me as obvious? Although I freely admit I might be wrong about it. But it seems to me in general that when men get carried away with something, it's with an idea, an abstraction, some ism of sort. But when women get carried away with something, it's with some thing, some person. If I'm right about this, then the rule proves what St. Therese is saying in reverse. Women follow Jesus because they see and love him as a person in a way perhaps differently and maybe even more intensely than men do. I get that. That's something to respect and admire, at least for us men. And it may be, it may be, one reason why women were emboldened to stay at the cross and men weren't. There's also this great line from St. John Paul in his encyclical on women. In God's eternal plan, woman is the one in whom the order of love in the created world of persons takes first root. The order of love belongs to the intimate life of God himself, the life of the Trinity. The dignity of women is measured by the order of love, which is essentially the order of justice and charity. Now pause on this for just a minute. What he said is that the dignity of women is measured by the order of love, and she is the one in whom that order of love takes first root. Man, there's a lot to unpack in that, and that would go way beyond where we are here. But if the order of love first takes root in women, is it very hard to see why women, perhaps more so than men, may be more deeply rooted in the very cause of love? I don't know, but it's worth pondering. It may also explain in part why the women we've been talking about in this series, because of that love, remained at Calvary and men didn't. John Paul seems to think so too. He says that these women at Calvary were subjected to this most arduous test of faith and fidelity, and that they proved stronger than the apostles. Remember, not only were they the ones who withstood the horrors at Calvary, they were the first ones to come to the tomb on Easter morning and find it empty, and then rejoice over it. I also wonder about how certain of the old prophecies weigh into this matter. I'm entirely speculating, but bear with me a minute as we come to a close. John ends his account of the crucifixion by hearkening to the prophetic words of Zechariah. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. So, yes, in fact, the women at the cross fulfilled this prophecy. They were, in fact, looking on him literally. And they were looking on him whom they had pierced, in the sense that they knew, or would certainly come to know in the weeks or years thereafter, that it was they who had pierced him because he died for their sins and the sins of all the world. And they, as women, would be particularly sensitive to Zechariah's other prophetic words that follow immediately after these. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Perhaps some of these women at the cross, could it have been Jana, Salome, Mary Magdalene? We don't know, but it could have been them. We have no information about any of them having any children. Unlike the other women we know who were there, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph, or the mother of the sons of Zebedee. But what about Jonah, Salome, and Magdalene? 
Could it be that any one of them had lost an only child? Wouldn't that have been rich? The terrible personal tragedy one of them, or all of them, suffered many years before that brought them to the point of despair as they wept bitterly and more deeply over the loss of their only child. They saw no sense whatsoever in it and may have asked God over and over, why did you let this happen to me? And then here they are, years later, personally fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy by feeling that same measure of grief and despair as they beheld the death of their dear master and teacher. Isn't that a very godlike thing to do? Let people suffer through a horrible tragedy and then, let, and then let them see later the great good he can bring out of that tragedy? He weeps with us, of course, but for reasons mostly beyond our com comprehension. He has permitted tragedies to occur since that fall of Adam and Eve. But as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Get that? In everything. In the loss of firstborn or only child. In the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. God works good out of these horrible evils. Was it the loss of an only child that allowed them to travel around Galilee with Jesus? That gave them the means, the independent wealth, so they could support him? To watch him perform miracles before their very eyes? Raise the dead to life? Cure the sick? Heal lepers? Give sight to the blind? Cast out demons? Calm storms? And multiply foods so they wouldn't have to buy any? To hear his stirring words, which made them happier, more peaceful than they've ever been before? To follow him all the way down to Jerusalem? To watch him die on the cross, to watch him be buried, to watch the stone roll against the tomb, to go buy perfumes and ointments, to wait out the Sabbath in sadness and expectation, to return on Easter morning and hear angels tell them he had risen from the dead, to be his disciples thereafter and spread the good news of the kingdom of God, perhaps to faraway places, even Rome, to be great saints in heaven for all eternity. Was it the loss of a child that gave them that freedom, the opportunity to suffer and enjoy all of this, every bit of this, in all its tragedy and fullness of happiness? Oh, what painful beauty. I think all we can do is wonder and sigh and tremble. Thank God for these most beautiful, most exquisite women of Calvary. My Lord, were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble, yes, tremble.